Amen. Well, it's been a full morning already, hasn't it? And uh, lots of uh, wonderful things the Lord is doing in our midst. And now we come to the highlight of the morning, and that is our time in God's Word. And I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Daniel. And we are going to re-engage in this uh, amazing book of the Old Testament. And uh, we took a little halftime break there uh, after finishing up chapters 1 through 6, which is really the history portion of uh, the book of Daniel. And now we're going to be transitioning into the prophecy portion, the last six chapters of Daniel, probably the, the um, less familiar of, uh, portion of the book of Daniel. And uh, it's really all about how the world will end. And that is the title of this morning's message, How the World Will End. And you know as well as I do, since the beginning of time, mankind has wondered, pondered how the world will end. Out of curiosity, I typed how the world will end into my Google homepage, and in just 0.4 seconds, it came back with over 2 billion results. And the featured uh, website was titled, quote, 15 Ways the World is Most Likely to End. And it provided a list of the terrifying things that could destroy the earth and wipe out the human race. This speculative list um, included an asteroid or meteor impact, um, nuclear war, uh, super volcano eruption, overpopulation, climate change, some kind of pandemic, uh, a rogue black hole, a gamma ray burst, a solar flare, a robot revolution, an alien invasion, and of course, in this day and age, how could you leave out of a list like this, zombies, (laughs) a zombie apocalypse. Well, we know Hollywood has made billions of dollars off people's inherent fascination with doomsday, end-of-the-world scenarios, and post-apocalyptic dystopian societies. We've all gone to the movies recently in the past years and seen Hunger Games and Divergent and The Maze Runner and Planet of the Apes and War of the Worlds and Deep Impact, Armageddon, Independence Day, The Happening, Battleship, The Day After Tomorrow, 28 Days Later, 28 Weeks Later, Contagion. Mad Max, Waterworld, Terminator, Artificial Intelligence, The Matrix, I Am Legend, Wally, right? We know that one. We've all seen Wally. World War Z, and 2012. This is just in the last 10 years or so, some of the most popular movies. And 2012 was an interesting movie. It was one of the most hyped highly anticipated movies in recent years about this global cataclysmic event that was based on an ancient Mayan prophecy along with a famous prediction of Nostradamus that the world would come to an end in 2012. Well, we survived. It's 2016. That prediction, those prophecies did not come true. And I find it interesting that throughout history, many groups and individuals have tried to forecast and even set a date for some kind of worldwide apocalypse that would end life on earth as we know it. The Jehovah's Witnesses are famous for doing this. Herbert Armstrong of the uh, formerly Worldwide Church of God, Hal Lindsey, Pat Robertson, Harold Camping, even John Hagee here in Texas 
uh, most recently with the Four Blood Moons book, made some uh, prophecies, um, set some dates of things that were going to happen. And again, to date, none of these predictions from any group or individual has come true. Why not? Well, because no one knows, nor can they know, the exact time that God has ordained for the world to end. The angels in heaven don't know, and not even Jesus, during the days of his humanity here on earth, knew when that day would come. Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, you may want to turn there with me as we begin this morning. Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, just laying the groundwork here as we as we transition into this, this uh, portion of, of biblical prophecy in Daniel, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so he's talking about the earth as we know it passing away. Verse 36, but that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. And then jump down to verse 42. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known what time the night, the thief of the night was come, the thief of the night was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Well, what's the point of that passage? If you're one that likes to set dates and say, hey, I think this is when this is going to happen... You're going against the Bible. Jesus himself said, you can't know, you don't know, so why try to set a date? It's impossible. And, and so the Bible simply emphasizes here, we know the world's going to end, okay, when Christ returns. But it doesn't set dates. What it does is simply emphasize readiness and busyness. The point is, are you ready? And... Are you staying busy? In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, after the resurrection and right before the ascension, the disciples came to Jesus and they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? Is this what we've been waiting for? You resurrected from the dead and now this is it. This is the kingdom. And they had no idea of his time frame that, no, he had to go back to heaven, and there was going to be this gap, if you will, between his first coming and his second coming before he actually restored the kingdom of Israel. And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Stop fishing around trying to figure out something that God never wanted you to know. He's the only one who knows. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my what? Witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And so at the most basic level, if you want to know why Jesus hasn't come back yet, because there's still some people that God has ordained to come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And when that last person that God's ordained to be saved get saved, guess what? Jesus is coming back. The world will end. And so in the meantime, we are to be busy doing what? Being witnesses, telling other people about Jesus and sharing the gospel 
in Jerusalem, in our own hometown, and in Judea and Samaria, the surrounding area, and even to the remotest part of the earth. So again, the Bible simply emphasizes here readiness and busyness when it comes to uh, our, our thinking about end times and the end of the world. Nevertheless, the Bible does contain a lot of predictions and prophecies in which God has foretold what would happen in the future. It's what's called apocalyptic literature. And of course, we know when we think about apocalyptic literature in Scripture, the first place we think of is what? What book of the Bible? Revelation. But the book second only to Revelation would be what? The book of Daniel. So you've got an Old Testament prophetic book, Daniel, you've got a New Testament prophetic book, Revelation. And so today we're going to launch into a study of one of the most well-known apocalyptic portions of God's Word. And, and it's comforting for us to know that we don't have to search the internet to find out the truth about how and when the world will end. All we need to do is search the Scriptures. And then rather than watching movies about the end times, we can just read the book, right? What's that old expression? Don't wait for the movie. Read the book, right? Um, just read the book. And... Uh, to see what it says about the end times. Someone has said it this way, if people want to know how the world will end, what better place to turn than to the word of the sovereign God who controls all history. And God has sovereignly determined how the world will end, and he has clearly disclosed how it will end in, in the Bible. He never intended us to have to merely speculate about the end times. He was graciously wanting to provide for us very clear, albeit complicated at points, revelation regarding future events. And yet, a lot of Christians are unfamiliar with what the Bible says about the end times. And one of the reasons is because preachers often breeze over apocalyptic sections in the Bible or avoid them altogether because they feel like they're too intimidating for them to interpret or too difficult for the people to understand. Uh, there's all this mysterious imagery and complex symbolism, and, um, and, and besides, it just kind of freaks everybody out anyway. So we don't want to do that. Well, I would submit to you that there are no more relevant, hope-filled passages in God's Word than those that deal with end times prophecy. One commentator said it this way, apocalyptic literature proclaims a theology of hope to those whom the world has marginalized. That's us, by the way, Christians, and getting more and more marginalized every day. It reminds us, he says, that God is presently on the throne and that he will ultimately triumph. In other words, as Christians, we know how the world ends. Jesus wins. And so do we. And so for those of us who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the, the end of the world is not something to get spooked about, but something to look forward to with great anticipation. And unlike the, the fictional prophecy that the movie industry uses to promote fear, uh, biblical prophecy is intended to provide God's people peace and hope. I have to say, I do distinctly remember some Christian movies that were made back in the 70s and the 80s, called the Thief in the Night series. Anybody ever seen those? Yeah, some of us are a little older have seen those. Well, our church played those movies. I think there was a, it was a trilogy, and one of them was called Thief in the Night. The next one was called The Mark of the Beast, and the other one was about the Antichrist. I don't know. What, but I, I, they showed those movies at the watch night service, midnight, starting at midnight, right, uh, every New Year's. 
And I'll tell you what, I watched those movies, I don't know how many years, and they freaked me out. I got saved every year. I mean, I was, I was freaking out. I'm like, I do not want to take the mark of the beast. I do not, you know, all this kind of stuff. I mean, I, they, they freaked me out. And so I think well-intended, those movies were trying to uh, put um, the Bible, bring it to life and, and, and play out, for the most part, an accurate understanding of the book of Revelation. But I tell you what, I didn't walk away feeling very peaceful and hopeful <laughs> after watching those movies. Uh, I think in many ways they were uh, designed to inflict fear um, in, in people. Well, the book of Daniel, I think, is the exact opposite. It, it really was originally written to give hope to God's people who were living in exile in a foreign land. Remember, uh, Daniel and his buddies and, and uh, many of the people uh, from Judah had been exiled, had been taken, uh, dragged away from Jerusalem, from their homeland, and they were now in Babylon as prisoners in a foreign land. And so they needed something to sustain their, their fledgling, or their, I should say their flagging faith, and, and, and renew their waning courage as they waited for their deliverance from exile. And so God wanted them to know that despite all appearances, He was still in control of everything um, that had been happening to them, and that He still had this glorious plan for them in the future. And so God revealed Himself here in the book of Daniel as the all-powerful, everlasting King of kings and Lord of lords uh, who reigns over all things. And he did that through a series of stories and visions uh, written down by his servant Daniel. And we talked about uh, when we launched this study that you could break the book of Daniel down into two sections. You've got uh, the history section, uh, chapters 1 through 6. We could just call it the stories of Daniel uh, and of course, we saw the, the many miracles, the 10-day the, the diet of vegetables, and they were uh, looking and feeling better than everyone else who was eating what they should have been eating. And um, there was this disclosure of, of the dreams and the fiery furnace and the insanity of Nebuchadnezzar and the writing on the wall and the lion's den. Um, and, and really, at the end of chapter 6, you just get this impression that, what was that all about? Well, All the supreme rulers of the world at that time were all convinced through Daniel's testimony and through the witness of his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that that God was the greatest power in heaven and on earth, and they worshiped and they praised him as the sovereign ruler of the universe. And we said that it's possible that Nebuchadnezzar even got saved and will be in heaven someday. So you have chapters 1 through 6, it's the stories of Daniel, and then you come to chapter 7 through 12, and it's the visions of Daniel, the visions of Daniel. Uh, what we see here, or what we're going to see, is that, that, that God, through Daniel, reveals that world affairs, the, the liberations of kings and the victories or defeats of their armies, all rest in the hands of God. God is the God of history. And so here we go uh, into chapter 7. Now, I think most of us probably could, before we started this series, could have recited the content of the first six chapters, right? We're all pretty familiar with the first six chapters. But few of us are able to articulate what is contained in these last six chapters. 
Uh, most of us have heard sermons and lessons on, on the beloved stories of Daniel, but few of us have ever ventured past chapter 6 into the dark, mysterious realm of chapters 7 through 12. In fact, I was thinking about this. Um, growing up in Sunday school, as I did, I can remember many flannel graphs. I mean, I can still see them in my mind's eye, flannel graphs of, of, of Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace and all those stories. And, and, and I can't remember flannel graphs with these scary beasts with horns and, you know, pictures of the Antichrist and fire and brimstone. I don't remember that being on the flannel graph. I guess the teachers just stopped at chapter 6 and said, oh, we'll leave chapter 7 through 12 for later in life. Because I don't remember anything ever being taught as a, as a child or a young person from the second half of the book of Daniel. And so the next six weeks or so will be I think much more difficult for me uh, to study and to teach, and also much more difficult for you to listen to uh, than the previous seven or eight weeks that we spent in the first half of the book. And yet, what we need to keep in mind here when it gets kind of tricky here and maybe um, arduous uh, as we work our way through these, uh, all this symbolism and, and, and these visions and dreams and trying to interpret it all, that, that we need to remember that chapters 7 through 12 is just as much a part of God's inspired word as chapters 1 through 6. And it's profitable and necessary for us to know so we can be fully equipped to live the way that God wants us to live in this world. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 3, I love what that verse says, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, talking about the sufficiency of, and the authority of Scripture, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And so all Scripture, including Daniel chapter 7 through 12, has been inspired by God, and it's profitable. It's helpful. It's useful. And in order for us to be fully equipped as believers, we need to have a grasp, uh, at least on some level, of what's going on in Daniel chapter 7 through 12. Um, I guess the point is, if God took the time to reveal the future to us, he must consider it very important for us to know. And so, just to let you know, my goal here in, in, in going over these six chapters is to, to, is to really try to avoid going into all the minutiae, all the minute details of these prophecies and get kind of a uh, hung up here uh, on, on some of this stuff that's really difficult to interpret and good godly men take different interpretations, but, but to simply explain the main principles and apply them to our lives today. So we're going to really focus in on the obvious and maybe just skim over the, the obscure, okay? That's, that's the goal. And uh, you might want to go into some of the more obscure sections on your own, in your own personal study, and I can encourage you with some particular resources that you might be able to use as we go about this. But let's just begin to wade our way into chapter 7. And it looks like uh, at, because of our time here, we're not going to be able to get too far. And so um, we'll maybe just get a feel for what's going on here, and then we'll find a place we can cut this off and pick it up next week, because I don't want to um, finish this message, because it will probably be more like 1230. And um, Jesus may not come back by then, but we do need to go to lunch. So, um. But chapter 7 here, I think, may be the most exhilarating and puzzling of all the chapters in the book of Daniel. And it serves really as the central chapter of the entire book in that it introduces the second half of Daniel by linking it with the first half 
by means of a strangely familiar vision. And let me just read for you this vision. And, and, and as I'm reading it, uh, follow along and tell me, uh, or at least think, where have I heard this before? This, is, this sounds strangely familiar. Daniel chapter 7, verse 1, In the year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Now, let me stop there just for a second. So far, all we've seen Daniel doing up to this point is interpreting dreams. He's never had any dreams, to our knowledge. Uh, everyone else is having dreams, and he's the guy that comes in and interprets the dream, right? Or tells the guy what he dreamt. But in, in, in Daniel chapter 7, now Daniel begins to record for us that he was having visions too. And he hasn't, just, he hasn't told us about him. And, and his first two visions, we're going to see, um, were during the reign of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon. This was before... This is after the death of Nebuchadnezzar, before the Medes and Persians came to power. This was before he was in the lion's den. This takes us back to chapter 5, if you remember Belshazzar's feast, where he was arrogantly partying with the, 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 the items from the temple, God's uh, temple, and, and uh, the, the handwriting, the, the hand came and wrote on the wall, right, that your, your basically kingdom is, is over. It's being taken from you. And, of course, the Medes and the Persians came that very night and, and conquered Babylon. And so uh, here we see this, this first vision that, that Daniel records for us uh, in, in verse 2. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea different from one another. Um, this four winds idea here is... I think, representative of God's providential work in the affairs of men through angels. Whenever the winds begin to whirl in prophecy, it's saying God is up to something. He's doing something. Uh, there's this great sea, probably uh, a reference to the Mediterranean Sea. That was the sea of, the, of all that took place there in the Middle East during that time. The great sea was the Mediterranean Sea. And so the events of this dream took place in the Mediterranean world, and that's what he's saying here. And, and also, I think we could say that, that um, a, a restless sea is a, a frequent biblical image for the nations of the world. And so we're seeing this, this, this restlessness. And Warren Wiersbe says it this way, just as the waves and currents of the ocean are, are unpredictable, so the course of world history is beyond man's ability to chart or predict. From a human point of view, the nations seem to work out their own destinies, but the invisible winds of God blow over the surface of the water to accomplish His will in his time. And that's what Daniel is referring to there in, in verse 2. Now, this is the part that will sound familiar. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it. And behold, another beast, a, a second one resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking and behold, another one like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and, a domin and dominion was given to it. 
And this I kept looking, after this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before, and it had ten horns." While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it, and behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. Now, as we read that together, hopefully that reminds you of a vision that we've already looked at earlier in the book of Daniel. What chapter was that in? Do you remember? Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of this image. And if you remember, the, the image uh, was uh, this, this statue of gold. It had a gold head, and then it had a, a silver chest and arms, and then it had um, a bronze uh, trunk and, and thighs, and then it had legs of, 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 of iron and, and, and the, these toes, these ten toes, and um, Nebuchadnezzar was wondering what all this was about. And so uh, the king, well, let me just reread it here in Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single statue. The statue was a lar- large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But that stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And so uh, what a power-packed little vision or dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And we, we interpreted that or we saw Daniel interpret that Uh, as four successive world empires. And Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and Babylon being the first uh, of those great kingdoms, which uh, Babylon was the head of gold and uh, was defeated by the Medo-Persians, which was that uh, breast of of, um, silver. And then Medo-Persian was defeated by Greece, and that is the the belly and thighs of bronze, and then Greece, the Greek um, empire, was destroyed by Rome. And that is the the legs of uh, steel, um, iron, and the the toes, the feet of iron and clay. So what are we seeing here in Daniel chapter 7? We're seeing the same exact principle, these four successive world empires, The difference here is that Daniel is seeing these things from the perspective of God. Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar saw them, these four nations, right, the historical nations, uh, from the perspective of man, very positively, and now we're seeing them from God's perspective. These are four evil nations that were portrayed to Daniel again from God's perspective. He envisioned them as a series of brute beasts rather than this one statue of gold, different elements, but this series of brute beasts that went from bad to worse, each one more frightening than the one before. And so these these hideous monsters that we've just read about here would, would have looked like something you might see in the most chilling 
disturbing horror or science fiction movie. It's kind of the kind of stuff that nightmares are made of. That's the graphic imagery here. And of course, the lion represents the Babylonian Empire, the bear, the Medo-Persian Empire, the leopard, the Greek Empire, and the fourth beast uh, represents, it's even done describable. It wasn't even a, it was just this, this fourth beast. It's the Roman Empire. And so, again, we know that because of the interpretation that was given in chapter 2. Well, just quickly, and, and we're going to have to cut this off here, but look at, uh, we, we, we don't go to the, you remember the, 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 um, the vision in Daniel chapter 2, how did that end? How did that thing end? This rock came out of nowhere, right? This uncut rock really hurtling from heaven and hit this statue and what happened? Destroyed it. And that rock grew into its own kingdom. And of course, who is that rock? Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that very same thing. Notice as we go on in verse 9, then I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing out, coming from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. And then look at, jump down to verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the prophets, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so interesting, we see the same exact thing. Now it's not uh, a rock, it's actually God in heaven, God the Father in heaven, and his Son, Jesus Christ, coming and being given all power and authority and dominion and uh, his kingdom, right, lasting forever and ever. Now, one other thing I just want to point out, and again, we're just doing a quick flyover here, kind of seeing the forest, I guess, and we'll get back to look at some of the trees in specific next time. But notice what it says in verse 18. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Notice the context here. We're, we just read that the Son of Man will receive the kingdom, will be given glory and honor and a kingdom by God the Father. But notice it says the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom as well and possess the same kingdom for all ages to come. He says it again in verse 22, until the ancient of days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. And then look at verse 27, then the sovereignty, the dominion, the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Again, the point is simply this, Jesus wins and so do we because we're on his team. If you're on Jesus' team, right, if you're one of the saints, right, one of those he's chosen for salvation, one who's repented of their sin and trusting him for their salvation and his work alone for your salvation, then you're part of this, this group, these saints, who will possess the kingdom along with Jesus Christ. And of course, we have this whole concept uh, um, really uh, emphasized and expanded in the book of Revelation over and over and over again in Revelation. It talks about how we will reign with Christ. Christ. 
for all eternity. And so the question is, are you on the winning team, right? Um, you think about this concept of knowing ahead of time who wins. Uh, how many times have you been watching some kind of sporting event, basketball, football, soccer, whatever, whatever you love to watch, and your team was behind? Um, some of you maybe remember the Final Four just recently, right? And, and, and the team, uh, North Carolina, you know, they, they had that last kind of shot and they thought, that, that, that's it, we, we got this in the bag. And then there was one last play and the very last second, another shot went in, right? And they lost. Like, they thought they were going to win and then they lost. And of course, everyone's emotions are just all over the place. You look at the fans, you look at the stands during any of these kind of uh, athletic events, and people are just all over the place. I mean, it's like their blood pressure is going up, uh, right? It's, it's crazy when you're, you know, you're throwing stuff around your living room, right? But imagine, imagine if you knew the outcome of the game. I guess, it, what is it called? I, my kids want to get it. I tell them we don't need it. It's the TiVo thing. What is, what is that? You TiVo something? Or what does that mean? Or you DVR, DVR, that's the thing. They're saying, Dad, we need, no, you're not. if you're not there to see it, forget it. You, you missed out, okay? So, Dad, we need DVR. So listen, and, and so you DVR the game, and you're like, hey, I, I don't want to hear it. Don't tell me who won. I want to watch it. I'm like, well, seriously, it's already happened, okay? Just find out, and then you can sit and relax and watch it. Seriously, you don't have to freak out. I mean, like your team's ready to lose, and all of a sudden, Hail Mary, and then you win, and you're like, you're almost had a heart attack. And I think about the, the, the way we live our lives, right? It's like this thing's already been DVR'd. We, we know the outcome. And so, yeah, it kind of takes the fun out of the, watching the game, right? If you already know who won, but it's a whole lot more relaxing experience. You're not freaking out. You're like, oh, yeah, they're, they're down by 25, but I know they win at the end, so this is cool. I can relax. It's no big deal. The point is, despite how things appear in your life right now, how, despite how things appear in our world right now, how about despite how things appear in our country right now, okay? Guess what? We know how this thing ends. And so we can just relax and not be stressing out, not be afraid, not be anxious, but just trusting that it's not always going to be this way. It's not always going to be this way. And we can find great joy and great peace and comfort in, in knowing that Jesus wins and we win. Well, I wish we had more time this morning to uh, look at this more in depth, but we'll come back next week and hopefully with that kind of overview, we'll, we'll come back and look at this thing more specifically next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word, even though we just really skimmed across the surface and just plucked out maybe the, a few main principles this morning um, I pray that uh, this would get us excited about uh, what we have in store with these um, last six chapters of the book of Daniel. And Lord, there's so much here for us, and it's, um, a lot of it's mysterious and, and, and confusing and hard to understand, but uh, there's enough here to get us excited and also just to, to allow us to uh, relax and trust you and, and know that um, you're in control. And that ultimately, uh, Christ will win. And, and so we will we. And that I pray for anyone who's just going through a very difficult time right now uh, in their lives, 
that, that you would give them comfort and hope this morning with a simple reminder, it's not always going to be this way. And uh, someday you're going to come back and make everything right, and uh, you're going to fix everything, and that we will have the privilege of living and serving with you for all eternity. Lord, may that give us joy and hope today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.